Even though you would sometimes disagree with him, he would listen. There are things that we can be doing right now to have open dialogue, to get public input, and to be able to make solid decisions for the state of Alaska. You know, politics, Mr. President, in my estimation, is a character test. Welcome to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. I'm Mike Mason. Today, Senator Tobin and I are joined by Senator Scott Kawasaki from Fairbanks. Scott Kawasaki has served in the Alaska State Legislature since 2007. During the time, Senator Kawasaki has been a member of the Democratic Minority Caucus in the Alaska House of Representatives, a member of a bipartisan minority caucus in the Alaska House, a member of a bipartisan majority caucus in the Alaska House, a member of a Democratic Minority Caucus in the Alaska State Senate, and now a member of a bipartisan majority caucus in the Alaska State Senate. Senator Tobin and Senator Kawasaki, good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning. So I want to begin right there, Scott Kawasaki. I think that you have uh, one of the uh, more lengthy list of experiences in this building. You have been part of every aspect of minority, majority, House versus Senate, Senate versus House. Tell us about that part of it, about the relationship between caucuses and House versus Senate. Sure. Well, it, it took me a little while to become housebroken uh, <laughs> from the House after after having been having served there for so long. And as you said, I, I was serving both in a minority position, a super minority position briefly, and then a bipartisan majority, but a small bipartisan majority. Uh, when I came over to the Senate, then it was I was in the minority, but we had six members. So it was a fairly substantial one with that uh, majority that just didn't work very well, was dysfunctional. So that was probably the easiest four years I've ever had since I've been here. I got to sort of sit back and watch things. And the process in the Senate's totally different. It's you're not having nine o'clock, uh, 10 o'clock finance committee meetings. You're done by seven o'clock. And uh, my office is over toward the garage. So I see when people leave, they leave about five o'clock in the evening. Uh, it's pretty wild to see Senate uh, sort of adjourn by that time and get out of here. I want to delve just a little deeper, if you don't mind. When I uh, uh, was in the house, especially early on, I was amazed at the, uh, and animosity is not the right word, but perhaps rivalry might be the right word, between the House and Senate. It didn't really matter Democrat, Republican, House versus Senate. It was like this relationship of the Senate is bad. And now on the Senate side, it's kind of, eh, the House is bad, or at least mm -hmm. dysfunctional. Can you talk about that relationship? And am I reading that correctly, that it exists no, that way? That's exactly true. When you think about it, uh, the House... The House majority and the minority, they're your opposition. The, the Senate is the enemy <laughs> in this. And, and it comes true now that, uh, you know, I'm in the Senate and the House is the enemy in this case. And that's just sort of the way it works in a party system with bicameral legislative body. You know, I sort of disagree with some things that Mike Schauer, uh, Shelley Hughes and Rob Myers, who are the minority, put forward, but I disagree a lot more with the majority that's currently in the House. Senator Tobin, can you uh, can you delve into that relationship, House versus Senate, Senate versus House? It is like we're on the softball field, and 
we are the Senate team. They are the House team. We have less players, so we need to take care of our players with grace and support. There is the same amount of committees on the Senate side as there is the House, so we do arguably twice as many meetings. We see the same amount of bills that the House sees with as many people as they have, which is twice as many as the senators. And so there is this sense of where we want to protect our own and we want to make sure that our teammates are able to do the work that they need to do, whether they're in the outfield, as we might think of the dissonance, or they're right there in the, the crux of it doing the, the heavy lifting. It is interesting to me because you end up spending more time with your team. We eat lunch together. We have the off hours together. We are in the same side of the building. And so I spend a lot more time talking to senators and just hearing how their day went or talking about their family members or joking on the floor. Senator Kawasaki and I sit relatively close together on the floor. And we listen to a lot of puns from Rob Byers, Jesse Keel, and James Kaufman. It's a constant pun off. So you get to know people, you get to engage with them. I don't have that same relationship with house members. And oftentimes what they do is perplexing to me. We were all just chatting about a very late night house finance committee meeting. And it boggles my mind that anyone would be sitting there at 9.27 p.m. thinking that this is a good usage of their energies. I don't do well at 9.27 p.m. I want to be watching the Great British Bake Off and eating, I don't know, I was going to say bonbons, but I don't eat bonbons, like Cheetos or something. <laughs> Fritos, actually. Fritos. I eat a lot of Fritos. That is accurate. So um, I want to take you back to Election Day 2016, General Election Day, uh, a very memorable election day for a lot of people. That was the uh, the day that, uh, that uh, uh, Donald Trump was elected president. But the next day was when the bi- first Alaska House Bipartisan Majority Coalition coalesced that served from 2017 to 2018 that uh, I think Senator Kawasaki was part of that. I think you will admit that coalition did some really amazing things. Sure, we did. I'll tell you, though, you know, it, the, the coalition started to coalesce way before that. There were fractures within the Republican Party. There was the Muskox Caucus, as they were known. They were the sort of dissident Republicans that weren't party-line Republicans, and that included people, um, oh, I don't remember everybody, but there were people like Louise Stutes, who's now currently part of the minority. She's a Republican. Uh, had Gabrielle Ledoux, also a Republican, longtime used to be a Democrat and then became a Republican. So we, we had um, this group that was already sort of formed, already sort of baked, ready to go the day after elections ended. So we were, we were all ready. I was actually more worried and sickened by the national elections and seeing uh, Trump win New Hampshire and sort of spread across the, uh, the West. So that was what I was looking at that night. So I just want to uh, reference that coalition uh, because today the discussions around this building, especially the kind of the rhetoric in this building, is all kind of focused on comprehensive fiscal plans and fiscal solutions. That first bipartisan House Majority Coalition spent a lot of time and and everybody, uh, I've been using this analogy of political capital, everybody spent every little bit of political capital they had during those first two years to get solutions passed 
much of which did not pass, but at least it passed uh, through the House of uh, House of Representatives. Can you talk about the difference, kind of where we are today, as opposed to what uh, that coalition was trying to, uh, to 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 solve back in 2017? Sure, I'll, I'll say we're slightly different than we were before in that the governor sort of shifted his policy. He said no new taxes. He vetoed a small vaping tax, which would bring in $10 million. He's sort of changed his mind and he's really come off the full PFD to a 50-50 proposal, which is still high, um, but at least he's changed his position and rhetoric, which has been helpful. The House also, some of the most conservative members have said the word tax before. They wouldn't have been able to say that at all uh, in a public setting. So things have changed a lot. I think there's the reality. And now that the Republican majority is in charge and they have the gavels, they have to figure out how to lead. And they didn't have to do that when we were in the majority as Democrats. And, you know, it's not like we love taxes as Democrats, but we were realistic about it. We needed to find some way to plug the fiscal gap that we've had for a decade. And we did. Since 2017 to now, what have you seen change in Fairbanks? What has been the reality of not having a stable fiscal plan? I think the big one was when the governor immediately says, well, we're going to have to cut some of the bigger spends. The one major one is the University of Alaska. He cut 42% of the general fund budget, roughly, um, you know, that's roughly... 25% or a quarter of the entire university budget. Uh, A lot of the budget for the university comes from federal funds. So, you know, we wouldn't have been able to make that up any other way. It basically devastated the university. I remember talking to President Mark Hamilton a couple months later. He said he basically had set the university back 10 years or a decade. And I think that's the truth. I think you know, it's it's a challenge where the university is at right now to emerge past that. And that was several years ago now. I really struggle with it because two of the programs that I went to UAA for are no longer offered after those cuts were made. And I look at the current patronage of our public university, and I don't see a lot of people graduating saying, here is this world-class place that I want to go. Look at the cool things that they're doing. All they look at is the struggles and the instability and say, well, maybe someplace else is going to be a better fit for me. And that's really sad, uh, you know, because of course my history started because my parents moved up here to Alaska to go to graduate school at the University of Alaska Fairbanks in the 70s. And um, you know, they made friends here. They went to did graduate school parties. They did a lot of things like that back in the in the late '60s and early '70s. And you know, it was because the university was a first-rate institution. Uh, my dad was a physicist. My mother was in English, and it's the reason why they came up here. They decided they wanted to keep a house here. They decided they really liked Alaska. They wanted to live here. Wasn't able to find a job after they graduated, so moved around all over the world. My sister was born in Canada. I was born in Japan, and they eventually got a job. My dad got a job at USGS in Colorado, and then they shipped him up here to Alaska. So that's how we found our way up here. I think that's the story for a lot of folks in Alaska, whether you're coming up because of the military or a job or a federal position or something like that. You come up here, and you you either – 
last year winter at 40 below in Nome with the wind, or you, or you, or you leave right away. So I, I think a lot of people tend to stay and because of that um, reason. So Senator Tobin and I are working on education policy and specifically education funding, which has proven to be a very heavy lift. You, however, chose something that is a huge, massive lift to get done, and that is election reform. Uh, I spent a lot of time the past <laughs> several years working on election reform because uh, uh, Senator or uh, Representative Tuck had House Bill 66, which almost got there last year. Why did you decide to, uh, to take up the challenge of election reform this year? It's because we needed to, and because there are a lot of folks who felt disenfranchised over the last election cycle, uh, conservatives and liberals, uh, folks that felt like they didn't know their place, uh, turnouts are poor generally. We need to come up with a system where everybody has faith in the system. And so when people like uh, Senator Shower, conservative member, say that there's this fraud out there, I think that hurts the system. So we tried to find ways to correct that and to get people more engaged and more to the idea that elections are fair, elections are done well, elections are administered well, and these are the things that we're going to do to fix it. So I worked with him, worked with uh, another conservative member in the House, Representative Sarah Vance of the Judiciary Committee, and you know we were almost there. Uh, of course, it's a couple hours, 48 hours before the end of session right now, when we just couldn't get it across the line, I don't think there's any chance the House would be able to get it through. I think one part that is really interesting with what you just said is how you worked with conservative members. I don't think people in the general public understand how much collaboration we engage with when we're building good policy. Can you talk a little bit more about that process? Because I don't think people would naturally put you and Sarah Vance or you and Mike Shower together in a room and think you're going to have a good conversation about election reform. Yeah. You, you know, here's the thing. I, when we come down, we fight like cats and dogs during election cycle. It's Democrats versus Republicans. It's independents versus Democrats. It's, you know, it's, it's whatever it is. And a lot of it has to do with federal elections and elections that are toward the top of the ticket. Um, but after that you're elected and, Campaigns are about promise, but representing folks is about leading. And we work with everybody. I don't think anybody's got a bubble over their head that says, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. We don't wear actually special clothes or anything like that down here. Some people might. There's a lot of pins going around. There are a lot of pins. Yes. Yeah. You got to wear your flag pin to be part of, uh, I guess, the Republican caucus. You got to wear a flag pin. Um <laughs> I just want to follow up on election reform stuff real quick. Um, it is it is immensely challenging because of the politics involved and the misinformation and, and all of that uh, that we could spend a lot of time on, but it probably would not be all that useful. I want to ask a, a couple of questions about specific aspects of the uh, of the election reform bill. One of the things that I am uh, have spent a lot of time on was kind of the ballot curing. And we've noticed uh, in the uh, in the vote by mail election that we held that were there were a lot of problems because people basically made small errors. Your bill uh, would fix that and uh, would be able to kind of give people assurances that uh, even if they make a small error, their vote would count, or there's the possibility their vote could count. They could right. go through a process. You might want to explain ballot curing. I don't know if everyone <laughs> in the general listening public knows what that means. 
Well, okay. So basically what it means is that if you do have one thing, like this, this happened a lot, and this is why both Democrats and Republicans support ballot curing generally, is that maybe you wrote your birthday down as your identifier and you wrote your husband's or spouse's birthday down instead of your own, it would disqualify you immediately. Um, even if you signed it, you did everything else right. Uh, there's a witness signature also that's supposed to be on these ballots. Uh, if a witness was not able to sign or if a witness, anything, any of these one little minute details could be wrong and their ballot wouldn't count. And the person wouldn't know until after the election was over. And that's really problematic. And I know that Democrats, Republicans, every spectrum had a person that called up their office and said, I voted and my vote didn't count. Why didn't it count? Well, you, sorry, you put your birthday down wrong or you put your spouse's birthday down wrong or you didn't sign it. You were supposed to sign it. Well, that's terrible because the person meant to vote. It's the on a detail, missed one detail that should have been corrected or cured that's what ballot curing does is it allows a person to be able to qualify their ballot. Um, normally what would happen or what would happen in this bill is division of elections would contact that person and say, Hey, did you vote? Did you vote in this election? Was this your ballot? Oh yeah, that was my ballot. Oh, you forgot to add your social security last four years social. You forgot to add your birth date. We couldn't qualify your signature or whatever. You're now your ballot's cured. You're able to vote. This ballot will be opened up on election day. In its simplest form, I, I and I looked at this bill. I've got talking points and the whole thing. It's a really good bill. In its very simplest form, it seeks to modernize our elections with things that are being done successfully across the country. Uh, and we could just run through the list of things, but like there's risk limiting audits in there. It's removing the witness signature. There's same day voter registration. There are a whole number of things that are in this bill. So uh, good luck, Scott Kawasaki, because uh, it's a it is a very big lift to do election reform. Well, and I think a couple of parts that the public often talk about is the paid postage that's also in this piece of legislation. I think one of the components that many folks don't recognize is how difficult it is sometimes to get your absentee ballot. So there's opportunities in this to get more uh, registration for folks who may be overseas for a period of time or may be traveling for a period of time. There are some really good components that I think the general public would very much support but there's also going to be some concessions, right? Because you had to build this bill with folks who are on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. And and there were concessions that had to be made, uh, you know, just to get sort of buy-in from both sides. And that's why working, you know, working with somebody like Sarah Vance is strange. We, we actually go to prayer caucus in the morning, seven o'clock on Thursday, every uh, Thursday. And, you know, we may not see eye to eye. We may interpret scriptures a little differently. But in the end, you know, we needed to make sure that something logical, something reasonable passed this year. And that's why we were able to work together on a bill like election reform. So you are listening to the Empty Office podcast, and I want to uh, kind of change from policy back to politics. Um, every year when I talk to Republicans and they are like, we are going to get Scott Kawasaki this year. We are coming for him. And every year you beat off every challenger and you've been here since 2000, uh, 2007. Does that sound right? When were you elected? 2006 was my first election yeah. cycle. Yep. So every year they're gunning for you and every year you survive. Uh, what's, uh, what's it like being a target uh, <laughs> of the Republicans in the state of Alaska every year? Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm a target necessarily. I, I've always sort of... No, no, Scott, you are definitely a target. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Well, in that case, um, I guess I don't feel anything about it. I, I feel like I'm doing my job. I work for the people of the district. I communicate with them. I, I feel like that ought to qualify a person for the job. I get the politics, right? Even if you're in the, even if you're, if you do everything right, you pass the right bills, you get everything done, you work at this job for 80 hours a week, you could still get bumped in the next election cycle simply because you have a D or an R after your name. That's terrible. I've been fairly fortunate um, that the constituents have sort of given me support, whether I'm a Democrat or Republican, and I have a pretty red district. It's a plus 16 Trump district. But I think people have seen, well, you know, he supports things. He gets endorsed by the National Rifle Association and the National Education Association. So I'm kind of one of those persons that doesn't fit into a categorical Democratic box or Republican box. I just vote the way I feel the people do in the district or would want me to vote in the district. And that's sort of gotten me, I think, support over the years. Yeah, they're going to they're going to send somebody up against me this year. I guarantee it. They always do. Last year it was a two-term mayor. The time before it uh was a wealthy uh, person who had um formerly been a member of the city council and whose dad was a member. Uh the first person I beat was the uh, member of the finance committee who was a legacy member as well and of course Senate president in 2018. Uh that was a big race. Um it was probably the biggest race for it was actually the most money spent on a Senate race in state history at the time. And I think it still is. And one of the best campaigns in, I think, at least in the history of Alaska that I've followed, it was really an an exceptional, exceptional campaign that you ran. Well, and I think, you know, people want to think that they can beat me. So I think, well, I think a lot of times they sort of let their guard down and the president said, I'm unbeatable. Nobody's going to beat me. He sort of let it go for a long time. And by then, we had already sort of made advances, sort of talked to the people that would normally vote for him and talked them out of voting for him and voting for me instead. And that was uh, sort of the, how we won. One of the things that I really appreciate about you, Scott, is the authenticity. I watch you struggle with difficult votes, but it's not from a place of political calculus. It's from a place of what's the right vote to make in this context. And I do think that resonates with people. They get your birthday cards. They get your graduation certificates. They know that you're paying attention. I watch you write those on the floor of the Senate, and it is not a staffer that's filling them out. It's not a pre-printed card that you're just simply being like, here, let me put a dot on it so they know that I've looked at it. You actually are putting in the effort to connect with your constituents in an authentic and real way that makes people feel seen. And particularly in the state with as small a population we have, that matters. It has real results. Yeah, we actually just went to a, consequently, we we are sending out these graduation certificates. We just went to the um, middle school model in Fairbanks in the school district. So now it's sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So fifth graders graduate now as primary used to be at fifth grade, and then they go on to middle school, which can be daunting for some, but they don't do graduations anymore at that level. I didn't realize that. Of course, it's been a while since I've been in school. So we sent certificates to all of the kids who were fifth graders moving on to sixth grade, and and uh, we got a certificate, and 
the mom contacted me and said, oh my gosh, my son was so excited to get the certificate from the state Senate. Oh, this is so cool. Thank you so much. And I said, you know, what reminded me about well, the importance of that is that I still have the um, Presidential Physical Fitness Award signed by none other than President Reagan and Arnold Schwarzenegger, the, <laughs> the Terminator. Like, literally, <laughs> I still have that. I saved it. I got it, you know, when I was in fifth grade or fourth grade or something like that, and I was so proud of it because I ran a mile in, I don't know, under an hour or something like that. But it was it was that kind of thing, and I think that I hope that that does the same thing for that kid they'll remember it. They'll remember their scholastic achievement. They'll move on, go to college, do whatever they want, but it'll be a small part. And I hope that that will have that same impact that it had on me. I want to build on that. Just uh, uh, We've been meeting with uh, students and principals and, and everybody associated with, uh, with public education in the state of Alaska. And there were a group of students, I think they were from the Bristol Bay Borough School District. And they came in and Senator Tobin had to go to a uh, uh, a judiciary committee meeting or something. So I met with them, but she she said hello to them as she was running out the door with her binders in her hand and the whole deal. <laughs> and those kids were like, oh, she said hello to us. You know, they were so, and that kind of interaction, like you were talking about, is so important and so powerful for people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're fortunate. Fairbanks doesn't send a lot of folks down here. I mean, it's quite a trick track to get down here. Uh, but it's always great to see a kid come in, whether it's uh, from an internship or from some other school type event to come down to the Capitol. I started, you know, I, I was able to come down, not not here, but to the national Capitol and become a Murkowski intern back in the day. And I still have that picture on my wall in the office right now um, with Senator Murkowski and Senator Stevens. It, yeah, it was a, it was a great time. Uh, Eighteen years old and living alone in Washington D.C. Well, there's something really important about being seen. That when you're a young person in these places, having your elected officials know your name, be able to connect with you on a meaningful <laughs> level, tell you a story about your parent because they may have met them. <laughs> there's real efficacy in that. I also think, and this is just because we are two uh, minority members actual ethnic minority members serving in the legislature, there is something very palatable when I see young people look at me and I know that they're seeing more than just the title next to my name. They're seeing them in this position. They know that they can get here because I tell them I'm from where they're from. I tell them that I went mm -hmm. to the high schools they went to. They are recognizing that this is a pathway that is available to them. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's really inspirational. You know, you look at what's going on in Washington, D.C., or you watch C-SPAN. I don't know what fifth grader will watch C-SPAN, but some do. And they see the fights, and they see sort of the made-for-television stuff like that. But to be able to connect directly, so those Bristol Bay kids that came here and got to see you for a split second, I think that that's one of those meaningful sightings that they're going to remember. And that's really cool to think about because, yeah, we're setting sort of an example for kids and for the next generation of legislators. So the, the folks that are on the House floor right now with their FAFO sort of <laughs> logo buttons, I don't know if that's necessarily the kind of picture you want to portray to future generations of political leaders, but, you know, teach their own. So with that, we're going to go to our final question. And I preface this for you, uh, Senator Kawasaki. So 
Uh, here it goes. If you could choose one person, dead or alive, they get a vote and they get to sit next to Senator Tobin on the floor of the Alaska State Senate. Who would that person be? Batman. I think a Batman would be good. I think a strong-willed, principled person, kind of quiet on the exterior, but you know, thinks about things in a different perspective. Um, has a secret. I think we all do. I think that kind of a person is uh, what this legislature needs right now. Batman can get it done. I like it. <laughs> Batman can get it done. Yeah. So you have been listening to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. You can subscribe to the podcast on the Substack and Apple Podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave a positive review. I'm Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.